As we go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Eternal Father, you have spoken in various times and in various ways to your people in the past, but in these last days you have spoken to us in your Son, the incarnate word. We pray that you will open the mouth of your servant to proclaim that word in the power of the Spirit. We pray that this same Spirit will open the hearts of its hearers here assembled to receive your holy gospel and write write it on their hearts. Write on your hearts your holy law, even as you've promised. All of this, gracious Father, we ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 9. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're glad to have you here. We've been considering a series through the gospel of Mark, and we've come to chapter 9. Our text for this morning will be the transfiguration of our Lord in verses 2 through 8, but to remind ourselves of the context, we're going to begin our reading at the beginning of the chapter with Mark chapter 9, verse 1. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, uh, it's found on page 1074 of many of those Bibles. Mark is the second book of the New Testament between Matthew and Luke. So let's hear God's own word and let us pay careful attention to it. Mark chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. And he, that is Jesus, said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Um, When we think about the great events of our Lord Jesus Christ, um, I wonder if the transfiguration really ranks in our minds. Um, As we think about our Lord, especially as we confess it in the Apostles' Creed, when we think about what he did in his humiliation, what he did in his exaltation, there are many great things that we could point to in the work of our Lord and in his life in the world. But I think probably the transfiguration is an event that we undervalue its importance and its significance for us as God's people. Uh, This is an event that is profoundly important for us, uh, profoundly important for us to understand the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, We talked a little bit about verse 1 last time, And we said that when Jesus talks about seeing the kingdom come in power, he's referring to this event, the transfiguration where he is changed. And certainly he attaches significance to that event as he describes it. Uh, Peter attaches significance to this event. The apostle Peter, who was one of the witnesses to this great event, writes about it in his second epistle. Um, in 2 Peter 1, 16 and 18, Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain." Um, he refers to this event when he thinks about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, his majesty being seen, his honor and his glory. And it's surely this event that the, the Apostle John has in mind when he writes what he writes in his gospel in chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We have seen his glory. Surely John is referring to this event where the glory of the Lord was seen in the world. And that's what this event, that's that's where we see the importance of this event, the transfiguration of the Lord that shows in this world the power and the honor and the glory and the majesty of, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who he is becomes visible in the world. And three witnesses there see it. Um, This is the importance of this event. And it's important in the context of Mark's gospel because one of the recurring themes that we've seen in the gospel is the truth of who Jesus is being largely unrecognized in the world. Haven't we seen that over and over again? Mark's gospel begins with this wonderful declaration. This is the story of Jesus who is the Christ, the Son of God. And he comes sharing that good news that the time is now fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, that everyone is to repent and to believe in the gospel because this great time is come in the history of the world where the king of glory has entered into the world in time and history. And that's who he is. He's the Son of God. He is the Christ, the Messiah, come into the world. His reign has begun. His kingdom is unstoppable. But as you look around, it remains largely hidden. Right? It's, it's unbelievable to think about the fact that there could have been people on a regular basis passing by Jesus in the street and just thinking he's another person passing by in the street. Right? There's nothing that, that stands out about him. You know, there's always artwork that shows him taller than everyone and glowing and halos and all kinds of, of things. But that's not how he was in the world. He looked like normal people. Wasn't that Isaiah's testimony about him? That he had no form or majesty that drew people to him. You could have passed him by and not really known that you were passing by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The second person of the Trinity incarnate. The one through whom all things had been made. Who was the heir of all things. Who was the exact imprint of the Father. Right? The image of the invisible God. And the king is a lot like his kingdom. It's largely unobserved in this world. Despite its power. Right? He's been given all dominion and authority. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom is one that shall never be destroyed. It's growing in the world, but it's growing 
largely unobserved. Right? When he told parables about the kingdom in chapter 4 of Mark's gospel, all of these things were stories of secret growth, like seeds going into the ground and growing. They, they grow unobserved, largely behind the scenes. And that was a, that's a reality about God's kingdom. That's, that's been something that Mark has been dealing with over and over again. But here in this particular event, it's as if the Father comes and draws the veil that's across Christ and shows him to the world for who he is. The king is no longer hidden in his majesty and glory. It, the Father draws across the veil so that they see him as he truly is. And they're given this wonderful privilege of seeing the king and seeing his power and seeing his glory and seeing his majesty here in the world. That's what we're given a glimpse of in the transfiguration of our Lord. I've been really helped in thinking about this event and its importance by a little book that one of my former professors, Howell Jones, wrote called Transfiguration and Transformation. It's a wonderful little book, um, and I'm indebted to him for his insights throughout. So I would commend the book to you, and if you read the book and you see a lot of similarities in the sermon, I'm warning you ahead of time. Um, All the best things in it are probably his, and all the mistakes are all mine. Um, But it's a wonderful focusing on this event and reminding us that here the Father is making visible the glory of his Son, giving us a glimpse of that future glory with which Christ will one day come. The glory that will one day be seen by all is unveiled here by the Father. He's the one who shows forth in the world the true glory of his Son. And that's what we want to think about. This passage is filled with glory, so that's how we want to think about it. We want to think about the glorious revelation of our Lord, the glorious conversation that he has with Moses and Elijah, and the glorious declaration that the Father makes about him. And so that's what we want to think, how we want to think about this passage together. The glorious revelation, the glorious conversation, and the glorious declaration. First and foremost in this passage, we have to reflect on the glorious revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ as his true glory is put on display. After Jesus makes this statement that people will see his kingdom come in power, we're told six days later he leads his three disciples Uh, that sort of inner circle among the disciples up on the high mountain. This is the same group of three that he brought together to see him raise the little girl from the dead in chapter 5 when he told her to rise from the dead. It was Peter, James, and John who were the witnesses to that event. Uh, The three of them, because I think that was the Old Testament standard for witnesses to an event, right? Uh, You had to establish something by the testimony of two or three witnesses, So these are the three witnesses that the Lord brings with him, that they can bear witness to raising the child from the dead, and they can bear witness to this great event that they see on the mountain. Um, It must have been a comfort to Peter to still be included in this group after his blunder, confessing that Jesus was the Christ and then trying to keep him from his objective and being told, get behind me, Satan. Uh, How wonderful it is that Peter is still included in this group, still brought with the Lord to see this great event. And as they're up on this mountain with the Lord, we're told that he was transfigured before them. Uh, Transfigured is a wonderful word. 
Um, it's where we get the English word metamorphosis. Um, boys and girls, when we talk about a metamorphosis, it's almost always with caterpillars and butterflies. I was trying to think. I don't ever know people talking about a metamorphosis in any other real way. Um, but we, that's what happens when a caterpillar goes into a cocoon and it comes out and it's a butterfly. And it's the same creature. We know that it's the caterpillar that went in and the butterfly that come out. It's the same creature, but it's remarkably changed. Um, you look at a little, I don't really like caterpillars. I don't, I've never liked little creepy crawly things, but butterflies everybody likes. Um, and it's almost hard to believe that this one thing goes in and it comes out so different. Um, and we express that difference in terms of this word, metamorphosis. It's a remarkable change. That's why it's such a fitting word to describe what happens to Jesus. He becomes remarkably changed. They still recognize him as Jesus, but it's a Jesus who's been remarkably transformed. He looks so different than the Jesus they've always beheld because now he's so radiant in his glory. It's still the Jesus they know, but remarkably changed. And what, what really is behind this transfiguration? It's that glory of Jesus that's largely hidden being revealed by the Father, being shown forth in the world, the glory of the Son. Right? We sing and hark the herald angels sing, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. It's as if the Lord is taking away the veil from before his Son and showing him forth in the glory that all the world will now see. It's the future glory of the Lord being seen now. It's almost as if the disciples are getting a view way ahead into history of when the Lord Jesus Christ will return in glory and seeing what he will look like then. And Mark is describing it probably the best way the disciples could describe it. Right? Imagine you saw the glory of the Lord and then had to try to describe it to someone. Um, you probably couldn't do a whole lot better than the descriptions that are in the Gospels. Um, he is transfigured, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. It's a radiance for which they have nothing to compare. Right? They're seeing what it will look like, as Jesus said in chapter 8, 38, when, this, when he comes in the glory of his Father, with his holy angels, right? That's, that's a brightness and a whiteness for which this world has no comparison. If we think of the brightest thing in our solar system, it's the sun. And showing my scientific prowess, I had to Google, are there things brighter than the sun? Um, and I was told, yes, there are. Apparently, according to Wikipedia, so take it up with them if you don't like my answer, um, apparently quasars are far brighter than our sun. So our sun is the brightest thing in our solar system, but quasars are the brightest things in the universe, and they are four to five million billion times brighter than the sun. But you know, for all of that light and for all of that brilliance, it still is just created light. It's the best of this world, but the light with which Christ shone there on the mountain was the light of God, an uncreated light, something that's brighter than anything we know, that's whiter than anything we know. 
They're describing it as best they can. But it defies descriptions of this world because it belongs to another world. It belongs to another order. Not of this creation, but of our creator. The glory of God is seen there. That's the remarkable change that comes over our Lord Jesus Christ. And in showing this visibly in the world, the disciples are seeing just who Jesus is. They are seeing his power and his honor and his glory and his majesty that will one day be revealed when he comes again. And to this glorious revelation then is this, glo- this glorious conversation when the Father sends Moses and Elijah to speak with Jesus. Um, one commentator said, they appeared by the permission of the Father in honor of his royal son. And this too is a way the Father works to show the majesty of his son in sending these two great servants of the Lord to speak with him and to show that he is more glorious than they and that these two wonderful servants of the Lord are still servants of Christ. If you wanted to think about two bigger people in the minds of Peter, James, and John, you probably could not have gone much bigger than Moses and Elijah. They are so significant as people of God, as faithful servants of the Lord in history. They, They were people who had both experienced the divine glory, who'd seen the glory of the Lord on high mountains and been forced to cover their faces before the glory of the Lord. They were two of the great faithful servants of the Old Testament. Moses was the servant of the covenant Lord in establishing his covenant following the Exodus. He was really the, the founder and the establisher of the covenant of God as a servant of the Lord. Elijah is the great defender, promoter, and restorer of the Old Covenant when it had fallen into such apostasy in Israel. He comes as a faithful servant to restore that covenant. Here are these two great men, the establisher of the covenant, the the restorer of the covenant, people who were so wonderfully exalted as servants of the Lord in this world that not only did they live extraordinary lives before his face, but they both left the world in ways that acknowledge how wonderfully they'd serve the Lord. Do you remember how Moses left this world? Deuteronomy 34 tells us he was 120 years old and his eyes were undimmed and his vigor was unabated. And he was buried by Yahweh himself. That's what a faithful servant he was. And probably all of us remember how Elijah left this world physically swept up in a whirlwind after chariots of fire and horses of fire had separated him from Elisha who saw him taken up in glory in that way. They they were faithful servants to the Lord and they were remembered as such faithful servants and they were also connected with the coming day of the Lord. Peter, James, and John all, all would have believed that Moses and Elijah would be connected with the coming day of the Lord and the judgment that came at the end of time. And they would have gotten that from Malachi 4, and 4, 4 and 5, the very end of the, of the Old Testament, where God's people were told, remember the law of my servant Moses, 
the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Remember Moses and Elijah is coming. Moses and Elijah also were connected in their minds with the great and glorious coming day of the Lord. And so the fact that they come and they speak with Jesus as their Lord shows his glory. That these servants bow before him. That these servants appear in connection with him. It's a testimony of his father to his great glory. They are faithful servants, but he is the son that they served. The father is revealing that glory here. Because together, Moses and Elijah really represent the whole scripture, the law and the prophets. And by coming and appearing and talking to Jesus, they show, as Calvin wonderfully put it, that Christ alone is the end of the law and the prophets. It's a wonderful picture. It's, it's a wonderful way that Christ is glorified by this conversation. But it's not just Christ who's glorified by this, it's the Father who's glorified in sending these servants to speak with his Son. Because if we think about it, what a comfort it must have been to Jesus to talk with them to talk with Moses and Elijah. Think about our Lord in this world. Who did he have to talk to? Flawed sinners, right, who at their best did not really understand why he was here and what he had come to do. When he talked to his disciples about, he clearly talked to his disciples about his call to suffer many things and be rejected by the authorities and to die a violent death and to rise again on the third day, even though they've confessed he's the Christ, Peter will try to dissuade him from that. After this passage, he'll talk to them about, don't tell anyone about the transfiguration until after I rise. Then they begin to talk to each other. What does he mean rise? What is he talking about? These are the people our Lord had to talk to in the world who at their best, like Peter, could confess he was the Christ one day and be told to get behind him as Satan the next. What a wonderful comfort it was for the Father to send two people to speak with Jesus who were perfected saints, who had been fully sanctified by the Holy Spirit, who were really truly enlightened and could speak to him without all of those human frailties his disciples still struggled with. And what did they talk about? Well, Mark doesn't tell us what they talked about. Thankfully, Luke does. He says they they came and they spoke to Jesus about the exodus he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. They spoke to him about his mission to go to Jerusalem and to die. And what a blessing it would have been for him in that moment where he's having to turn his face towards Jerusalem to do the hardest thing he's been called to do as a servant of his father, to have people he could talk to about it who were fully sanctified and who were fully enlightened. Two members of the church triumphant 
who could come and talk to the lamb who was going to win the triumph for them, to encourage him with what he was about to do. What a gift from the father to give to his son in that moment. It tells us something about our heavenly father, doesn't it? It reminds us once again that he's the giver of every good and perfect gift. That they come down to us from him as the father of lights. And not just gifts that come to us, but gifts that come to his son in his hour of need. To have two people like this to speak with. Two members of the church triumphant. To speak to about this. How right Peter was when he said, it is good that we are here. It was good that they got to bear witness to the glory of the Son and the glory of the Father that was revealed in what he did for his Son. And how wonderful it would have been if that's where Peter had stopped. If that had been all he had said. And Mark says, granted, Peter was so terrified he didn't know what to say. But it's a good practical reminder, if you're too terrified to know what to say, you probably shouldn't say anything at all. Right? Um, Boys and girls, maybe that sounds like familiar advice. My parents used to tell me, if you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all. Um, Well, this is a sort of play on that. Peter, if you don't have something, if you're too scared to say something, don't say anything. Um, Because what he says really provokes the father's reaction in what he comes and says after Peter speaks. Because Peter recognizes it's good that we are here. But as the disciples are watching, again, Luke is really helpful to us because he says Peter says this as Moses and Elijah seem to be parting from them. So it seems like the conversation is about to end and Moses and Elijah are about to leave. And Peter is watching this and it's, think about how glorious it is for Peter to be witness to this, how Peter, James, and John get to be witnesses to this. And he sees it's breaking up. And he doesn't want it to break up. And so Peter thinks, I can stop this from breaking up. I have a suggestion. Let's just stay here and not let this break up. Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make tents, one for each of you. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And we can just stay right here. And and Peter, in saying that, makes two really huge blunders. The first blunder is really betrayed in the way that he addresses Jesus. Rabbi, it's good that we are here. It's sort of like, is that really all he is to you right now? You already know who he is. You've already confessed who he is. He's the Christ. He's here in his glory. Moses and Elijah are talking to him as their Lord. And this is the title you give him, rabbi, teacher. Don't you see him as more than that? And the fact he doesn't yet see him as more than that is when he puts him on the level of Moses and Elijah. Now in doing that, he probably thinks he's exalting him. One tent for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. You're all very important people. He probably thinks it's a compliment to say, you are like them. 
But it's almost as if to that statement, the father comes and says, no, he's not. Right? It's after Peter says that, that the cloud comes over them and the voice is heard. Peter will later say it was the voice of the majestic glory talking to the usual knucklehead. But the Lord sweeps in and the glory of the Lord overshadows them. And we know what that cloud means. When that bright cloud would swarm over something in the Old Testament, it was a way of saying, the Lord is here. It was a a way of showing both the presence of the Lord and protecting those around from it. Because this bright cloud would show that the Lord is here. But it would veil his presence so that those who were there would not be consumed by the glory. It's in response to this that the Lord comes, that the Father in heaven comes and makes this declaration. When Peter tries to put them all on the same level, it's the Father who comes and says, No, Peter. He is not another servant. Moses and Elijah are faithful servants. But this is my beloved son. There's no one like him. This is my beloved son, the other gospels tell us, with whom I'm well pleased. There's no one like him. That word beloved is really a lovely word in Greek. It really shows us that it's, it's capturing both the preciousness of the person, but the uniqueness of the person. Um, it's, it's a title given to Jesus specifically to show that he is particularly loved by his father. Um, it's not always a blessing to look up Greek words in lexicons. You seminarians know this. It's not always a blessing to use a dictionary, essentially, to look up a word. But it is when you look up the word, and the definition is one who is the only one of his class, but at the same time is particularly loved and cherished. The father comes and says, he is not another servant. He is the only one of his class. And he is particularly loved by me. This is my only dear son. There's no one like him. And it's because of who he is that the father gives the command he gives. There is no one like this. There is no one loved by me as he is loved by me. Listen to him. There's no greater voice that will speak than his voice. It must be listened to. It must be listened to because of who he is. The only beloved son of the father. We use that word beloved a lot in church. I call you beloved a lot. It's to remind you that you are dearly loved by God. But we know that we are dearly loved as adopted children. We are dearly loved children of our Heavenly Father. But there is one beloved who is greater than all of us. There's only one who's not an adopted son, 
but as an only begotten Son, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Father comes in his, in his glory visibly and audibly to say to them, no, this is my beloved Son. You have to listen to him. He said that to Peter, James, and John. He's saying that to us. He says that to the whole world. He must be listened to. And after those words are spoken, it goes back to normal. This is a wonderful event that happens. Right? This is a glimpse, as one person put it, into eternity while time is still running. It's a glimpse into the heaven on earth that will one day be. And they've just heard the voice of the majestic glory of the Father speaking and telling them of the value of Jesus Christ. That we are to listen to him, as one person said, for all other voices are but for a time and die into silence. But Jesus speaks for eternity, and his words shall not pass away. When time is ended and the world's history is gathered up into its final issue, his name shall stand out alone as author and end of all. This is the glory that they've participated in, and suddenly it's gone. Think of verse 8, the suddenness of it. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. They got a glimpse of what it will be like at the end, but it faded away. It faded away from their sight. It doesn't fade away in their memory, as their writings tell us. It doesn't fade away in our memories because the gospel has preserved it. It was good to be there, but it's gone. Um, And this is one of those events that we wish we could have seen and we wish we could spend more time meditating on. Not that you're saying you wish the sermon was longer. And don't worry, it's about to come to an end. Um, but it's an event that, as we think about the magnitude of it and the glory of it, it's the kind of thing where we could say, it would have been so hard to see it and see it disappear. But what we should keep alive in our memories is this wonderful glimpse of the glory that was seen in this world as a glory that will be seen again. And it won't just be seen by three witnesses. It'll be seen by all. Because this glory is coming again when the Lord Jesus Christ returns in glory. The time is short when this glory will be seen by all in the world, and it's a glory when it's seen again will never fade away. It won't be a temporary revelation which is what Peter couldn't see, that it was meant for a time and it was not yet the fulfillment of all things. Christ had to still go suffer and die. But when he comes again in glory, there won't be any work left to do. The work will be done. The end will have come and that glory will be permanent. And the glory that they saw here for a moment, we will see for an eternity. The glory of the Lord Jesus Christ revealed. But there's more than just seeing it. Peter, James, and John at this point were only witnesses of the glory. But what is the wonderful truth 
that when that glory is seen again, we will not just be witnesses of it, we will be participants in it. Because when that glory appears fully and finally and forever, those who know the Lord and love the Lord will be transformed into that glory. Right? That's the promise of Scripture. That just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. Because our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Then it's a glory that won't just be witnessed, it'll be participated in. So that when we see him like that, we will be transformed to be like him. That's the glory that awaits those who listen to the Lord Jesus Christ and do what he's called us to do, which is to repent of our sins and put our faith and trust in him. May we all listen to his son and not only see his glory, but participate in it and be transformed by it. Amen. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us this glimpse of your son, your son as he will one day be in glory when he comes again to judge the living and the dead. We thank you for this view of glory that was given before he had accomplished his exodus in Jerusalem, before he had died to reveal to his disciples the power and the majesty and the glory of your son. But we thank you that he went from that place and was willing to suffer and to die and to rise again to save sinners. We thank you to know that when we see his glory in that day of his coming, it's a glory that will not fade away. He will be glorious forever in our eyes and that we will not just witness but participate in that glory. What a day that will be. As that day is coming soon, Lord, we pray that you would prepare every heart and mind here to meet the Lord when he comes. For all will see his glory, but only those who believe in him will participate in it. So we pray that you would work faith in all of our hearts so we might repent of our sins and turn to your son in faith and find rest for our souls and find a glory that will not fade away. Sustain us with that hope until he comes, we pray, and speed the day of his return. For we ask these things in his name. Amen.